Hello, I'm Lawrence Lever, Chairman of CityWire, and I'm joined today by Chris Slowly, who is our European editor responsible for the Selector channel. And hello, Lawrence. hello, hello, Chris. We're already talking over each other. That's a good sign. It means we're both, both keen to speak. Uh, anyway, this week we had CityWire Mantra virtual. The first time that CityWire has done a whole day's virtual event, and I'm pleased to say it went extremely well. And one of the reasons was that Chris chaired a huge chunk of it. So I'm going to ask you, Chris, to talk a little bit about what you learned from Montra. Well, first of all, that's far too kind, but thank you, Lawrence. So we, we kicked off the session with um, two central bank heavyweights, so to speak. We had Richard Werner and Michael Howe, two men who very well versed in central bank thinking and central bank successes and failures and they very much focused on the failure side of things in our discussion the, um, we looked at what central banks had done going into the crisis what they'd done during the crisis and who was likely to come out smelling of roses and the the answer was nobody effectively i mean they they weren't being critical for the sake of being critical but they um would said that the ecb has essentially been a disaster zone in the way it has developed over recent years one of the positives that Michael Howell put forward was that the Fed had responded quicker now than it did in 2008. But yeah. even that is a backhanded compliment because it was looking at how badly it had done in 2008. But they got into some of the minutiae of what they think is going to happen from here on in. And that was what I found really fascinating. So they were looking Let's at hear it. Let's well, they were, it. They, were, they were talking about how central banks are essentially trying to accumulate more and more power. And Richard put forward the idea that central banks are effectively trying to kill off smaller banks. And so he said they're, the raison d'etre of many of them is to try and I've got my notes here so I don't get the numbers wrong but he said that they have effectively targeted around 5,000 banks to put them out of business with the view of moving themselves into a more pivotal role in people's lives so rather than just funding the economy they would actually become somewhere that people to an end would end up with accounts directly from the ECB now over what time frame I don't know but he seemed adamant that this is part of a many step move to get the ECB into people's lives. Well, I can see the cachet of having a Bank of England checkbook, although these yeah. checkbooks don't exist very much anymore. But it's also quite Machiavellian, isn't it, to kind of think that the central banks, these run by unelected officials, are, are going to take over our whole banking system. Well, I'm not I mean, sure. I'm not sure, you know, without some more proof, I would uh, agree with that. I think um, it feels to me like, first of all, as you said, they were much more prepared. There was much more coordination than before and uh, a much less political interference than there was in 2008. But then again, you know, this wasn't bailing out greedy bankers in inverted commas. This was responding to a, a human uh, disaster. And so I think they had the political will alongside of them. I think it feels to me, I mean, I wasn't in at all, but it feels like a sort of ex post facto interpretation of their motive rather than taking on face value that what they're doing is trying to stop the economy from collapsing. Well, there was a large amount of that. And I think when we got into the, the weeds of how they were going about what they were doing now, Michael Howell raised an interesting point that, and again, I'm not a high level economist. So there was elements of it where they went into areas that were, um, I'm sure much of our sophisticated audience were very much enjoying because we've got a lot of questions throughout it. But Michael mentioned that the, the dollar swap lines. So this, this area behind what the, the Fed's doing has become particularly interesting because it used to be open to only six countries who could effectively operate in the 
dollar swap lines. You're going to have to explain to me and probably well, most I was, of the audience what a dollar swap line well, is. I was worried that you're going to ask me that. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to go through my notes very quickly to find out. But while I do come up with a proper um, definition, definition of it. Yeah, we'll quickly look up Wikipedia. Yeah, I'm on, I'll go to Investopedia as quickly as I can. Yeah. But, um, so it is, some, it is a function of liquidity, essentially. And right, it's okay. allowing people to come in from foreign areas and um, sort of ease the pressure on the dollar to an extent through swaps and through dollar swaps. And so this used to only be open to six central banks, but over the start of this year and as the crisis intensified, so over March, I think it was, they added nine more central banks that were allowed to trade in this sort of behind the scenes dollar pool. And he said, this is the equivalent of creating like a, a dollar NATO. So we're getting a, a uniform, so there's a global group of like central it. banks yes. who are underpinning the reserve, well, the, the main reserve currency of the world. And so he said that's really interesting from a geopolitical standpoint as well, because you're, the dollar very much drives a lot of what happens in a lot of markets anyway. But if more people have influence over it, then it spreads the, well, it spreads the risk, but it also spreads the amount that countries have to coordinate. So we hear a lot lately about the, the death of globalization and the rise of protectionism. But if you've got 15 central banks involved in driving the dollar, perhaps it's going the other way. I think in financial services, there is a lot more you know, and I see it in regulation as well. There's a lot more globalization, sharing, and they've moved from memorandums of understanding to proper information sharing and coordinated action. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, the kind of, if we want to get really dry, we could start talking about MIFID, but uh, let's, let's not do that. Shall I tell you a little bit about my well, session? Yeah, I, was gonna, I was gonna move on to that because it seemed like there were some elements of crossover with um, liquidity being a huge one. And liquidity, I understand, came up in your Discussion yeah, massively so. Massively so. I mean, so let me just set the picture. Uh, we had uh, six uh, chief executives uh, of asset management groups, and they range from very large. So the Tixis was Jean Rabi, and uh, they control about a trillion dollars or a trillion euros. I mean, who, who cares? A trillion anyway of something. And uh, they're purely active. And uh, we also had a chap there called George Muzenik who founded his own firm uh, a long time ago. I think it was 1988, but has been active since 1971. Purely bonds, purely corporates, actually. And uh, so, so it was kind of quite, quite a diverse range of chief executives. I mean, they, they, they run a fraction of uh, what the Tixis does. Uh, we also had uh, Sycamore represented and Van Eck and uh well and value partners from asia so it's good to get the view from asia but liquidity so i think jean rabi opened by saying he just thinks there's a lot of advantages there's a lot of good things about exchange traded funds but in the current uh situation in march he felt that there had been dislocation so in particularly that some of the exchange traded funds are traded at quite large discounts to their supposed underlying net asset value and uh so you know, to the man on the Clapham omnibus or the, nor the layman who thinks that ETFs represent NAV, that was not the case. And, um, you know, there were some counter arguments to that, which is that, you know, perhaps they actually, whilst they, you know, and some of those exchange traded funds, by the way, were in quite liquid, supposedly liquid uh, strategies. I think there was even one or a few or certainly a lot of money attached to ETFs around uh, treasuries, US treasuries. So 
there was kind of quite a lot of discussion around that. What was, uh, what was the comeback? Because I know a couple of, like Vanek, for example, were in there and they are yes. an ETF provider. So how did they take to the, the ETFs taking the floor, so to speak? Well, I think, I think their view was that um, exchange traded funds have uh, come out pretty well. Uh, you know, none of them or very few of them actually, you know, stopped unlike some mutual funds. Uh, they also felt that, uh, you know, exchange traded funds needed to be very clearly labelled. So um, Martin uh, uh, was against the idea, interestingly, of leverage on e exchange traded funds. He said, look, these are wonderful uh, instruments. They're supposed to be plain vanilla instruments. They provide an incredible function. But once you start putting leverage around them, you start to create trouble. And he would be happy to have uh, a ban on leverage. And I think he made the point as well that, you know, you say there are a discount to net asset value, but perhaps they more accurately reflected net asset value. And he even gave the example of, uh, of the Greek crisis where the Greek market was closed, but you could still buy and sell the ETF. So it provided a very valuable function too for people who wanted exposure in those situations. So, um, you know, and you kind of think, how much can you talk about ETFs for? But they kept coming back and we had an audience of 240 people and most of the questions were around exchange. What do you think that funds. was, Lawrence? Is there a reason that they were so keen on ETFs at the moment? Is it people for looking for um, a topic to beat for the moment, if that makes sense? Because people are worried that the extreme swings in the markets were caused by the ETFs. Were, a lot of, were the questions negative or positive? Uh, I would say the questions were neutral. Okay. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think there was definitely uh, some of the participants, and I said George Musinick's been around since 1971, and they wanted to have some sort of review as to the role of passives, that's not just ETFs, but also index funds, in the extreme swings of the market in, in March. And certainly some of them feel or thought or, or actually said that they thought the passives had generated those extreme swings up or down. And that couldn't be a bad thing. And therefore, there needed to be some kind of review. As for the audience, I can't really say. I mean, ETFs are a mainstream product now. And uh, I guess anything that might undermine them or question them, etc., they want to be properly informed. So um, I, I can't actually speculate uh, beyond that. We did get into talking about um, bonds as well which was uh, another interesting topic. Uh, um, just connecting the two, uh, George Musinick came out with an interesting phrase, which he called, he said, there's nothing quite as dangerous as, in inverted commas, pretend liquidity. So that means what it says. It's like you're buying something and you think it's liquid, but it's not. And yeah. he certainly highlighted that in relation to ETS, but he also highlighted it in relation to bonds. And that some bonds are just have pretend liquidity. And he thinks that what's going to happen as the banks have stepped back from lending, for they've been tied, hands, hands tied by the regulators, there's going to be more bond issuance, but a lot more of it is going to take place in private markets where, you know, it says what it is in the tin. It's private. There's no general market for it. Everybody knows it's a grown-ups market. It's probably an institutional, it is an institutional market. Um, you know, these private debts are, are not liquid. But there's going to be a lot more issuance of corporates in private markets. Yeah, we've heard the same from our side of things when we've just been writing, because we've done a lot more coverage on real assets. We've seen the crossover. We've seen what we would consider traditional investors from our side of things start to look at the private market as well, of 
how they could get additional yield, find additional opportunities there. So it does seem like there is a crossover, a blending of the two in some areas, but it all comes down to sophistication and, and what the client or what the, the investor is willing to stomach and what they can understand. And I think also lack of transparency. You see, I think private markets, private debt, private equity is a non-transparent market. You know, you can't turn on your Reuters screen or your icon or whatever you want to call it, your Bloomberg, let's just not uh, prefer one or the other and, uh, and see the price of private equity funds. You know, I mean, there are service providers that do provide it and they get it from some of the investors in a roundabout way, but I, I would rather see more transparency in, in, in these markets. On bonds, there was one area that you've mentioned to me a couple of times already, which is the airline bonds. That sounded like a particularly interesting area. Well, yeah, you see, and I couldn't really, I couldn't really get much out of him. George Musinick has uh, created an airline finance unit, which actually launched in February. And you would think, what spectacular ill timing, but actually it might be spectacular good timing. Um, and because you've seen Boeing have uh, raised 25 billion, a record uh, in a bond issuance uh, uh, recently, and Delta $3 trillion. Uh, and I think Boeing were only going for 10 trillion or slightly more than 10, and they ended up with 25. And the rumor is that the coupon was five, over 5%, 5.15%. So I just kind of think it's interesting. You're getting all these headlines about airlines not being able to fly or going bust or desperately seeking. And yet, here's a couple of examples of an airline supplier, stroke defense manufacturer, uh, and an airline raising huge amounts of money. And I'm interested to know where, who is subscribing and why. And I guess the why is because the feeling is that um, the, uh, the governments will stand behind those companies and therefore getting quasi-government backed money at five and uh, 15, you know, 5.15% is a really good yield. I'd like to say one other thing on that, by the way, it's just a kind of occurred to me as we were preparing for this. I mean, these in these market conditions, I know Warren Buffett said he can't find anything to buy. That might be also because he's just got so much money. He needs to invest huge amounts for it to have any meaning. There are going to be a hell of a lot of opportunities to buy assets at distressed prices and make good money. But I think a lot of it is going to take place off market. A lot of it's going to be private. And I think, um, you know, and, and that's the problem. I think a lot of people who ought to be able to participate in that, like mutual funds and the underlying investors just won't be able to. So that was quite a speech from me. Um, uh, the uh, Asia, we talked a bit about Asia. We had King Lunao from uh, Value Partners. He also highlighted very interestingly the amount of leverage on some of the uh, um, exchange traded funds and bond funds. I mean, I within think the Asian market specifically. Within the Asian markets. Okay, so it's a universal thing, then. It's not. It's, it seems like there's not just one region is going to suffer more. One he he said they more. had. He said they had piled into oil futures, for example. That was one of the. He thinks he said um, that was just you know, a, a, a really bad thing. Dr. King Lunao said. Uh, he said, we manage the, uh, he's from Value Partners. He said, we manage the largest China high yield fund in the market. But during the week of the 16th, which I think means March, it was a quite a stressful period for us. But mainly we saw the sell down across the board, not just our bond fund, many bond funds in the market because of deleveraging. In Asia, a large chunk of the market is from private banks, retail banks, 
especially private banks, and they provide leverage to clients in these kind of low interest environments. But once the market started to turn, it triggered all these margin calls. I think it's exaggerated in this situation. I don't know whether it's the same case elsewhere in Europe and the US, but providing clients with leverage in these kinds of low interest rate environments is very common in Asia. And, um, uh, and where I want to get to with this is that we've been picking up rumors that a number of the large bond funds had structured products wrapped around them, uh, which can be a form of leverage because these products can offer you one and a half times or two times the return on these large funds. And that when the funds went down, those products had to be unwound. Now, we're still looking into this. Dan Grote is looking into it. But certainly, GAM have come out in relation to one of their large bond funds and said that was the case. And I think it's an interesting area because my understanding of this is if you want to write one of these structured products, you know, you'd want to do it on a large fund because then you can buy the units to uh, protect yourself, you know, to, as the provider of the product. But I think you need the cooperation of the mutual fund manager. So, and I, re I remember many, many years ago, and I think it was Spain, and I think it was Fidelity, where they turned around and said, no, you cannot wrap structured products around our funds anymore. And I think that is something that needs to be further examined. I hope I'm not giving away a story to someone else in saying this, but structured products on mutual funds, I think, I'm not saying it's a huge part of the market, but I think it's an important part of the market, which hasn't yet been properly articulated, certainly not publicly articulated. We just have to hope that you've lit a fire under Dan and he's he's cracking on with it now. Well, you know what Dan's like. He's nothing but not tenacious. Yeah.